Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi everybody! Welcome to Howard David Live. We get going on a uh, on a Tuesday. Take a little bite of the Big Apple with the uh, Celtics Net series going on. We bring in Sean Grandy, the radio voice of the Boston Celtics. I'm going to take a stab at this, Sean. I'm going to say the MVP of Game One was Boston coach Ime Udaka, who designed a defense that stifled Kevin Durant into shooting nine of twenty-four and committing six turnovers. Would you agree with that? Well, it's pick your poison, right? I mean, what you what Ime does have, what he has carved out all year, is the best defensive team in the NBA. And you have to choose. You, you have two of the best offensive players, not in the division, not in the conference, not in the league, but of all time on the other side. So one of them is going to go off. And the choice was made. You know, Marcus Smart, defensive player of the year yesterday, couldn't be on Kyrie for every single minute, although <laughs> if it was up to me, he would be. Um, you know, for every minute that Kyrie's out there, when, you know, Kyrie got going, and he was brilliant and until the last play. And you have to, you know, do your best. I think for the Nets, I, I don't think it was. The Nets shot 54% and scored 114 points against the best defensive team in the league, albeit without Robert Williams. And that's why it was such a gut shot, because you knew for the Nets to win the series they were going to have to get a couple of these close games with either Kyrie or KD going off. And almost every single thing they needed to have happen happened, except for the last play. The Celtics got off to a big start to where they opened up a double-digit lead. and then, the, Like in every NBA game, everybody makes a run. We've seen it time and again. The Nets made a run, got right back in the game, actually took the lead. So they take a, they got a one point lead, uh, and then um, uh, Kevin Durant uh, was forced into taking a very impossible shot, which he missed. But it wasn't just that one play; it was everything that led up to it. The defense that was designed to frustrate Durant to where I mean he's very good with the with the ball. He he doesn't turn it over that much. They forced him into a half a dozen, particularly early on in the game. Uh, you could see, I mean, you're calling the game. Are you surprised by what's going out on the, the fact that they opened up a double-digit lead? Uh, I, you know, I think you're always, listen, I'm surprised every time Kevin Durant misses a shot. That surprises me. I literally expect him to make every single one because even when you put a great defender on him, he, generally speaking, is four or five inches taller than the best defender you're going to have to put on him where he plays the game because he's, you know, he's a seven-footer who can make shots from anywhere. But, yeah, the Celtics sent second guys. And, like, you don't the, – the new trend in the NBA and the Celtics have the personnel to execute it perfectly is, listen, double teams aren't new. Double teams came right after the peach basket. But the timing of the double team, double teams coming late when a guy thinks he's got one guy on him and then here comes the second guy, maybe from the backside. And on the final play, on the key final play, when Kyrie and I, I think, you know, you'll appreciate this analogy because, listen, the last call, the last 45 seconds, has gotten a ton of play. Obviously, it went viral. 
you know, with Max going crazy and that particular audio. And, you know, I've got a line in there about Kyrie trying to do it all himself and getting burned by it. And to me, it was people saying, wait, why are you going to Kyrie? I'm like, because he messed up the final play. But that, if you only hear that, that was after he pitched a perfect game. He had one of the great playoff performances we have ever seen on a first-round stage like that. And it was the equivalent of a pitcher pitching a no-hitter or a perfect game and taking it into the ninth and then blowing it, you know, in the, on the final play and losing the no-hitter, the perfect game, and the game by going, you know, Kyrie going one-on-three against the best defense in the league. And I bring that up because you're asking about the Celtics defense on Durant. They threw the second guy and the third guy on Kyrie, and he never gave up the ball on that final possession. And that's why the Celtics, that's why you forced Durant into that the really tough shot. Dragic is one of the best players on the floor in game one. He's wide open in the corner. He's wide open in the corner. And Kyrie just dribbled into traffic because he, in the in the moment, and you can certainly understand why, he wanted to be the one to to finish off his, his masterpiece. Well, he had 39. That ignited the Celtic fans to boo him, to taunt him, to really work him over, which we expected. He expected. And then... Uh, he gave the uh, I'm number one sign uh, to the fans, uh, <laughs> which, uh, look, I understand where he's coming from. I understand where the Celtic fans are coming from. This is not unique. It's happened in other arenas. It happened in other situations. But this is, look, Kyrie had his issues in Cleveland. He had his issues in Boston. And technically, he's had his issues with Brooklyn with not taking the vaccine. If he had taken the vaccine, there is no question in my mind that the Nets are the one, two, or three seed in the East going into the playoffs. Which is why I said at the start of game one, I think that there is a, not the entirety of it, obviously, but there is a significant piece of Kyrie's legacy to me is tied to this series because the Nets are in this spot because of Kyrie's decision. And that's, you can defend his decision, you can attack, whatever. Kyrie's decision is Kyrie's decision. Everything he does is up to that dude's going to do what he wants to do, and you got to respect his choices. But he's the one who put the Nets in this mess. And while everybody else in the East was sort of uh, afraid is the wrong word, but fans certainly were terrified, who's going to get Brooklyn in the first round? Because we knew somebody was going to come up, you know, somebody's dice was going to come up snake eyes and have to play Brooklyn in the first round. And obviously that ended up being the Celtics. But at some point, you have to say, when are the Nets afraid of the Celtics? When are Nets fans afraid of having to play Boston or Philly or Milwaukee in the first round? And that, that happened because of Kyrie's choice. The complication with Kyrie was so frustrating. If you just want the series to play out, Kyrie, whether, I don't think he genuinely realizes that he is making it worse by talking about it the way he is after the game, by responding to it. If you want the bees who are swarming around you to go away, Howard. Do you just ignore them and keep going? Or do you violently swat at them and start going in circles and making a big deal about it? Whatever. That's, they're just going to get louder now because it's clearly gotten to. And every time he says, oh, it doesn't bother me at all, I love it, yet he acts that way, he's the fighter who takes a good shot. And then when a fighter gets really hit hard, what does a fighter do? Shakes it off, right? No, nah, that was nothing. Didn't hit me. You know what that means? He hurt me. <laughs> when a fighter said, no, that didn't hurt me, it hurt him. Hey. And so Kyrie's clearly been affected by this whole thing when he could just make it go away, but he won't. Yeah, no, I understand. That's who he is. He's Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics. Uh, when you, you think of the Celtics finishing in the two spot, 
It should have been Milwaukee, but they tanked. Let's but let's let's make no bones about it. They tanked. Yeah. Uh, they didn't play Giannis. They didn't play Middleton. Uh, they played the Holiday, I think, for eight seconds in, in that game. Uh, and, and so, uh, look, I, I don't like that. I don't like the tanking. I think you play to win every game. I think if you ask every athlete if they play to win every game, they would say they would say yes. So I didn't think that was right, but it is what it is. So let's move on. Game two. Uh, yeah, but here you got a point. Point out, before you slip by that, that here's the the poetry of that. If the Celtics can some listen, if the Celtics get beat, and Brooklyn, and by the way, just it was one game, and we have seventy two hours to talk about it, so it feels like oh my gosh, the Celtics record. All they did was win one home game by one point. So if the Celtics lose a series, then Milwaukee maybe did the right thing. If the Celtics somehow survive, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant get through to the second round. What the Bucks did on that final day of the season was give away home court advantage right. in the second round. And right. wouldn't it be ironic if the Celtics survive and get there and a Boston-Milwaukee series comes down to a seventh game and it's in Boston instead of Milwaukee where it should have been because of the way the Bucks chose to play the final day. No, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, look, the unsung hero for Boston in game one, I'm going to say Al Horford. 20 points, 15 rebounds. Got very little notice. I mean, of all, all I read, I mean, it was talking about Jason Tatum and making the winning shot and so on, and the Celtic defense. But Al Horford played a huge role in that game. Well, he was pretty sung on the uh, on our broadcast, that's for sure. And he was, I thought he was the best player on the floor. I thought he was the MVP of game one. He set the tone. And Al is at the stage of his career where, and it's sort of what you want. Like, you tend to think of players at 35 or 36, well, they're, 70% of what they used to be, and they're 60% of what they used to be. But with Al, as with some other guys too, but specifically with Al, it's almost better in that he's not 70% of the player he was. He is 100% of the player he was 70% of the time, which is what you want. So you're going to get some rough games from Al Horford through the course, especially through the course of 82, and games where you have to rest him. But when you get Al, when you get fresh rested Al, Fountain of Youth Al, you're getting the you know the 2012 2013 you know that that Al Horford and when you step back and you realize why the why were the Celtics so good why were they the best team in the NBA in the second half of the year and yes the offense was phenomenal but they were the best defensive team all year why because at almost every spot and this is without Rob Williams right now at almost every spot they have a very good to elite defender and Al didn't get attention all year and this is Al's dream was to play on a team where he can, Billy Joel's dream, right? Play back up in somebody else's band. He doesn't have to answer the questions. He doesn't want to be the guy with the camera, the ABC camera in his face after the game. Talk to Tatum. Talk to Brown. Talk to the defensive player of the year. I'm just going to come in, get my 20 and 15, play amazing defense, and then go home and be with my family. So it's like a dream scenario for him. Plus, he, you know, he loves being back in Boston. This was a guy last year, Howard, who was sent home by the Thunder because he was helping them win games, which they didn't want to do. So they basically sent him home, and he was home in Atlanta during the season. And I asked him right after the game, we had him on, I said, could you have imagined in your wildest dreams that you'd be back here where you were the happiest, playing in this cauldron of a building in game one of the playoffs with everybody, you know, it was just the farthest thing from his mind a year ago. And, boy, I hate, you know, anyone knows my relationship with him, man, I hate to give him credit, but Brad Stevens pushed some serious buttons here during the year and sort of cleaning out the roster, bringing Al Horford back, bringing Daniel Tice back, and how big was that with the Rob Williams injury, and just, you know, clearing out spots for other guys to play. Let me ask you this. Uh, look, there were four guys that went over 20 points the other night, Marcus Smart being the fourth. He became the first guard 
to win the Defensive Player of the Year award since 1996. But he gave you offense as well. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning of the year. How much do you think was the new coach and his adjustment to the team and the team's adjustment to him? How much did that affect the slow start of the Celtics? It was big and threw into that. All right, so here's Ime Adoka, brand new coach for the first time, starting from scratch. Now, he gets the job. Does he Is he able to jump right in and be the head coach of the Celtics, or does he have another six or eight weeks in front of him, including going to Japan for the Olympics as Greg Popovich's assistant on that team? Then, does he have a full training camp with everybody, or do two of his starters have COVID? and miss most of training camp and the preseason. Does he have a full training camp as a brand-new head coach, or does he test positive for COVID and has to sit out the last week of training camp? All of this building up to a slow start, and then guys learning a new system, and all the above. Jay the Brown missed a lot of that first part of the year, and they had to – it was going to take time, and they you know had tough games – or you know, bad games at the beginning of the year where they, you'd see it for – Boy, 10, 12, 15 minutes, this team could be really good, but not nearly enough. And there were other teams that hit the ground running. You know, Phoenix got off to the great start this year in Golden State. A lot of teams that had their players in place and were relatively healthy and got off to a great start. But, man, it, it when it clicked, I've never seen a midseason turnaround like this where the Celtics not only were the best defensive team in the NBA all year, in the second half of the year, Howard, they were the best offensive team in the league. They, they literally they lapped the field. That's how much better they were. But you they went from dominating for two months, and I mean dominating the league. You'll appreciate this. They, they had a two-month stretch where they outscored teams, not by three or four points a game, by 15 points a game for a 30-something game stretch. That just does not happen in this league. It's extremely rare. They, were the, they had the best road-scoring margin in the NBA in the last decade. But when you had the Rob Williams injury, now playing without Rob, they've gone from best team in the NBA dominating every night to a really good team but their their margin for error is razor thin and here you are losing a key defender and a go-to guy offensively can always get you that lob bucket as a bailout and you take that piece away and then go in to face the best seven seed maybe in, in the history of the league. Do you expect Williams back for this series? I don't and I think it would be it's almost like you're the it was four to six weeks was the you know the label on it four weeks comes up as a series which has been very drawn out obviously you're not playing game three of the series until saturday night then it starts going every other day so if you go by that magic mystical four to six weeks thing four weeks comes up in the second week of the series when the games start happening quick it'd be really tough to throw him back in in that environment i mean you're really if you're the Celtics, what you're hoping is that the Celtics can get through the series and then you have some practice time and some ramp-up in the parlance of the day and get him ready for a second-round series. But I, I don't want to say it's as much folly. Ben Simmons coming back seems like folly to me. Hmm. But you would throw that kid in after not playing for a year into this outrageously intense environment and just expect him. Ben Simmons is a guy that could put the nets over the top. Ben Simmons at Ben Simmons' peak is exactly what they need. Perfect piece, compliments, you know, Kyrie's, you know, his maestro brilliance offensively, compliments him with a guy that can defend multiple positions. But how on earth is it fair to expect Ben Simmons, with everything he's been through physically and emotionally, to, after a year away, to throw him in to this outrageously intense 
playoff series when he hasn't played. It's not fair. Yeah, no, most people I've spoken to said that they think that it's in Ben Simmons' interest to just put it, put the bags away and then start again next training camp. Yeah. I, I don't disagree. Uh, look, I know a lot of people that have had uh, disc issues, back issues, whatever. Uh, not as young as Ben Simmons, obviously, but it's just something that just doesn't go away. Yeah. And you're, you're asking him, if you asked him to make his season debut for the Nets after a year away in, say, game five or game six of the series, that's essentially trying to repair a car and then taking it out of the shop and pulling onto the Audubon. <laughs> it's just not, it's not fair, uh, you know, for, for anybody. So, you know, the specter of it could change the series, but this is the difference between playing on a computer, playing fantasy basketball, and real-life basketball. Because, you, you know, Ben Simmons at his best dramatically changes the dynamics of the series, but it's just not fair to expect getting Ben at his best. No, I mean, Ben Simmons at his best uh, makes the Nets a much better defensive team than they are. And that's their Achilles heel. Uh, you, you look at that last play where Tatum gets the layup. Uh, somebody dropped the ball. I don't know if it was Irving. I don't know if it was Durant. But somebody, I mean, you cannot allow Jason Tatum to sneak in, get a pass from Smart, and knock down a layup. I mean, somebody made a mistake. You'll, you'll appreciate it. As a play-by-play guy, you will appreciate how odd that was to call that moment because and i'm getting to the you know the defensive what you're referring to defensively how many games how many nba games end with a the final 45 seconds playing out without a stoppage not a foul not a whistle not a timeout not a free throw nothing the final 45 seconds played out of that game without the whistle blowing Mm -hmm. and number two how many playoff games do you see ending on a buzzer beating layup right no, you're right. ha- so your eyes, after seeing thousands of games, it didn't compute right away what was happening, and that you know, email wasn't going to call a timeout, and all these things were happening at once, and that's that's by the way why you don't call a timeout, so you can get guys you know get guys running around. But the poetry for the Celtics was at the beginning of the year, which you just referenced, they were not moving the ball, and they were not moving without the ball. They weren't sharing it. They weren't trusting each other. And on the last play of the game defensively and then offensively every single thing that the Celtics have done this year to turn the, turn the year around happened on those plays everybody touched the ball in those final 11 12 seconds every all five guys touched it uh, that's uh, not, now what you're doing is you're looking at Hoosiers and Gene Hackman says you know everybody picked, you know five passes five passes <laughs> you know? uh, look uh, we're talking with Sean Grandy, the voice of the Boston Celtics. Kevin Durant was stifled the other night. Credit the Boston defense. You cannot expect that to happen two games in a row. Nope. Not because because Kevin Durant is the is one of the top. I don't know three four players in the NBA. Uh, he's, oh yeah. They, he'll find a way. So now the question is, can the Celtics defense expect to have that kind of production? two games in a row on Durant, or do you shift your focus and go and, and try to contain Kyrie Irving? Well, I, obviously you have to, and I think you need more. Where the Celtics need dramatic improvement going into game two is the performance from the bench, which has been so good all year. And one guy who has fit in seamlessly and been 
between good, he's, sh- he's had his shaky moments offensively, but got that going late in the year. Defensively, he fit right in immediately, is Derek White. We talked about, you and I talked about him before. Mm-hmm. That was not his best game as a Celtic, which is a kind way of saying he had a rough game one. That can't happen again because you need, basically that's when Kyrie went off is when Marcus Smart came out of the game. And you need Marcus Smart to help on Durant. Listen, of course Durant's going to go off. He's going to go off in some games in the series. And the, the Nets are going to win games. The Nets will win a game in the series when they don't even play great. But Kyrie and Durant are going are to get them a win because they're just that impossible to stop. The question is, can they get four of them? But the Celtics are going to need more from Derek White. They're going to need more from Grant Williams. And I wouldn't mind seeing Dayton Brickster play a little more than he played uh, in game number one. But it's tougher, you know, you throw rookies into that and our second-year players are guys who haven't been through it. Pritchard and the same thing happened with Kessler Edwards, who's going to have to be give Brooklyn some defensive minutes, which which they don't have. But I didn't think it was a great offensive game for the Celtics, even though they scored. They have to be more efficient, you know, at the rim. I think the change for Brooklyn, you're going to see more of Claxton and less of Drummond because they were much better with Claxton on the floor. That said, the Celtics are going to have to attack and score more. You know, at the rim, they're going to have to be better offensively than they were in game one. Early on in the game, Seth Curry, uh, I think he had seven or eight points very quickly. Uh, and then for he disappeared. Uh, I sense that they're going to try to get him more involved, uh, which opens things up because he's an outstanding shooter. Now, he's playing on a bad ankle. I don't know how bad he's suffering. I have no idea. But I'm going to say it's affecting him somewhat. But he doesn't show any effects outwardly. Having said that, uh, look, I when I first time I saw Jason Tatum, he was at Duke, and it was in the NCAA tournament, and I said this kid is going to be great because I he just he just blowed me away. Now I think it's fair to say that he's gone from all star player to superstar in this league, and I don't know where you rank him top five, top six, top eight, top ten. I don't know where that ranking is. I do know this. Jason Tatum is a superstar. And ironically, it was the game, the, the signature game that illustrated what, what Max and I have been talking about, my partner Cedric Maxwell, for, for a couple of years with, uh, with Tatum, is that, and it's, it's amazing that you're play, they're playing the Nets again, because last year the Celtics played the Nets in the first round of the playoffs. And in that series, you could still see it was, it was visceral with Tatum, who is very respectful of the players that came before him and the, of the star players that he had posters of, right, on the wall. And playing against the Kevin Durants, playing against the Steph Currys, playing against the elite players in the game, there was a almost subconscious deferential nature to the way Jason Tatum played, as any young player would when you're playing against your heroes. But there had to come a moment, we have been saying for a couple of years, and it finally happened this year, and you could see it in that game against Brooklyn, the big Sunday afternoon ABC game in March, when it finally dawned on Jason Tatum that he is no longer a young player looking up to the elite players in the world. He's now one of them. Yep. And that clearly happened in that game. It was the best game I've ever seen him play was that, that Brooklyn game, that Sunday afternoon game. And he has carried himself that way. To me, uh, the answer to your question about top five is, I think the three MVP candidates are the three MVP candidates. And as far as first-team All-NBA, you got three guys, really, for the other two spots, which are Tatum, Booker, and Luka. And it's just a matter of two of those three getting the spots. And listen, Kevin Durant played 65, 68 games instead of 55. You know, Kevin Durant's in the MVP conversation. Yeah. But, you know, that was he just missed too many games. But, yeah, I think Tatum is clearly... Absolutely top 10 this year in the NBA. 
I mean, I, I'd probably give him that spot over Luca. It's a tough one, right? With Luca and Booker. Booker played with Chris Paul. Phoenix was the best team. That's a, uh, you know, throw those three guys in the hat and pull out two names, and that's your, that's your first team all NBA. Sean Grandy, radio voice of the Celtics. Uh, Paul Pierce, who was an outstanding Celtic, uh, made a statement yesterday that I kind of did a double take. He said that he doesn't consider um, LeBron James uh, one of the top five players in the history of the NBA. All right. I mean, that, that's a barroom argument. It's like saying, who's better, Michael or LeBron? It's an argument that, that it's great for, for fun and all of that, but it's really silly. Uh, is LeBron James one of the greatest of all time? Absolutely, without question. I mean, here's a guy who could play five positions on the floor. Uh, is he one of the top five? I don't know. We can sit down, we can dissect it. But for the purpose of this interview, I, I don't think we need to. I was just kind of surprised that Paul would go there. I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. because that was a that was a rivalry that okay. was a okay. high intense rivalry and remember Paul had established himself and then listen LeBron how many thousands of players have played in the history of the NBA 5,000 LeBron has gone past pretty much all of them including Paul so and Paul is a top 75 guy Paul's one of the greatest players ever and it was you know it's been documented this year and he's a Hall of Famer and what a year he had but obviously I think it's uh, silly is the wrong word. I think it's headline grabbing. But Paul and LeBron had a, you know, Paul's one of the few guys. Paul had to stare him down a lot. Those two guys went head to head because trust me, I was there for every single one of them. They went head to head 50, 60 times. <laughs> you know, and there there were a ton of playoff series, uh, Eastern Conference games. You know, they went head to head. I watched LeBron come in as a rookie and eventually pass Paul and everybody else by to become the best player of his generation. And I think that it is a separate conversation for another time. But I get the difficulty of shuffling the deck of real time into history, right? It's always, that's always a struggle to do it, right? To say, how, where does Mike Trout rank among the greatest baseball players? I don't, he's still playing. I don't know. Right. And LeBron isn't done playing yet either. So you don't, everybody is on a mantle and they're in concrete. And, you know, Bill Russell's career and Kareem's career and Michael Jordan's career. And God knows, we have a 10-hour, 20-hour documentary of Michael Jordan to worship if we ever want to, you know, you feel like going on a DVR and watching it. But LeBron is still playing, so he's subject to all the criticism, and it happens. Trust me, in 20 years, you and I may not be around how we're talking about it, but someone's going to say, oh, he's no LeBron James. He's one of the best players ever, but he's not LeBron. LeBron went to six finals in a row and did all these things. I think it's absurd to suggest if you don't think LeBron is the best player to ever play, that's fine. If you don't think he's in that conversation to those four or five guys that you can talk about it legitimately, I, I don't know what to tell you because, of course, he is. Well, uh, I would say this. That this is a conversation that would go great in the barbershop in Coming to America uh, <laughs> where I, I, sat behind, I sat behind the copy of the Atlanta Constitution when your boy Max was in the chair and I thought it was coming to America. <laughs> I swear. Yeah. I never laughed so hard in my life. But then again, every time I talk to Max, I laugh. Uh, before I let you go, two things have surprised me so far in the playoffs. Number one, the ease with which Philadelphia has taken apart Toronto. Yeah. And and the fact is that it's Maxi has given him that third option. Not only giving him the option, my God, he is killing it. Uh, and, and the other thing that surprised me is that Dallas beat Utah in game two without Luka. 
Yeah, I would have been surprised. If it had gone the other way, I was more surprised that they bounced back in game two because usually you can get that one game, right? Okay, we don't have Luka. We found out late. We're not going to have him for game one. There's a lot of adrenaline. You don't have your best player. Obviously, they can't win this. I don't think they can win the series without him because uh, you're not going to get games like Brunson and Kleba went what? Like, it seemed like they went 20 for 20 yeah. shooting threes last night. That was in his, Look at what they had to do. Look at how many threes Dallas had to make to – you know, to get by and win that game. I don't, I'm not sold on Utah as that top tier elite team. I think what they do is great in the regular season. I don't think it works in a playoff series. And I think, look how they're getting, you know, this is going to be a tough series. I think Utah probably gets by, particularly depending on how long it takes Luka to get back. But I just, I, I'm not sold on them now as a championship caliber team by the way they play, the way they defend, the way they don't. The Philly thing is interesting in that Maxi has done that throughout the course of the year. But the question was, boy, could he do that in the playoffs? Because Toronto had Philadelphia's number during the regular season. Yep. And that plus the question mark of, okay, Maxie, that was great in the regular season, but is he, is he legit to do it in the playoffs? So, yeah, I'm kind of with you that the ease, you know, I expect Philly to win the series, but I didn't think it would be as easy as it looks like it is going to be. And sort of the opposite of Milwaukee-Chicago, which that to me looked like it was a walkover, and that was kind of a tough, you know, a tough game one. Well, game two comes up tomorrow, Celtics and Nets. Uh, I, I can't imagine two games in a row would be similar in the way that they play out. What do you expect? I think it will be. I think there are going to be some snowflakes, some fingerprints in this series where they, they will be different. Um, I expect there to be some many more memorable moments. Listen, just the subplot, I mean, as we said at the start, like a quiz question for everybody, is the loudness, the stirring of the crowd, the uh, hostility, the distraction directed at Kyrie going to be better or worse in game two? It's going to be worse. It's going to be louder because Kyrie has basically said, bring it on. Kyrie is the bad guy wrestler right now who's grabbed the mic and said, don't tell me that I suck. Don't chant Kyrie. I do not suck. I am Kyrie Irving. And I said, whatever you do, don't chant that. It's basically what he's doing. is <laughs> like egging on the crowd to make it worse. So that that is going to make it a fun, you know, that, that environment is going to be wild anyway. I expect Durant to be better. I expect the Celtics bench to be better. Um, you know, Boston missed a lot of shots. You know, Jalen and Jason got off to slow starts too, <laughs> just like Kyrie and, and Kevin Durant. So I think that instinctively when the series started, if the Celtics had Rob Williams, I would have felt pretty good about it from a Boston perspective. And I still think it's going to be hard for the Nets to beat the Celtics four times. But man, they've got the two guys to do it. And I think. As a Nets fan, I'd be my concern from a Brooklyn perspective is that was the game that they should have won and the kind of game they needed to win to win the series. And generally speaking, although the series is not going to fall under the heading of what we're accustomed to, generally speaking, that road team gets one shot, right, in those first two games to steal one. And, you, you know, the Brooklyn could come in and win by 20 tomorrow. Who the heck knows? It's that kind of series. But from what we know, historically, you generally get one shot, and that game was – that was their game to take. They had it and then let it slip away. We'll see. Always appreciate your insight, man. You stay safe. Thanks. You too, Howard. He is Sean Grandy, radio voice of the Boston Celtics, who succeeded some stiff. I don't know. What was his name? David? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk a little pro football because the draft is coming up a week from Saturday. And in the local New York area, you got two teams that between them have four draft choices in the top 10. So that's going to be extremely interesting to see how that all shakes out. 
I'm looking forward to it myself, but then again, you know, what do I know? I'm, I'm just doing Hello? the best. Oh, Daryl, it's Howard David. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Um, I don't know if there's another market around the country uh, that can say there's more interest than in the New York market, primarily because you've got uh, both local teams. Between them have four picks in the top ten. Let's just say that's the beginning, but wow. I mean, everybody's in the New York metropolitan area that even likes football a little bit is going to be interested in the draft. Yeah, and it's an enormous draft for both of these teams in the Jets and the Giants. They try to dig out of the holes that they've been in here now for a few years. So this is a really critical draft for uh, for Joe Douglas and, and for Joe Shane, uh, who are both at obviously different timelines uh, with their respective teams, but uh, a huge draft for both those guys. Who's there more pressure on, Shane or Douglas? Well, I think Douglas for sure. You know, this is this is really his third full off season because he was hired after the draft in 2019, and it's time for him to kind of deliver some results here. And rookie GM Joe Shane just started out, no cap space to work with. Obviously, the draft is big because you know, they weren't able to do much in free agency. And they do have a lot of draft capital and can fill up their roster holes that way. But um, you know, he's obviously got a longer leash at this point than Joe Douglas. Daryl Slater of the Newark Star-Ledger covers uh, Jets-Giants. Uh, will either team, do you think, trade back to get more picks? I think it's possible, but I, the one thing that, that sort of throws a wrench in that possibility this year is the fact that there aren't really a, you know great quarterbacks or even a great quarterback in this draft. And so if, you know, if you're looking at the Jets at four and the Giants at five, uh, would a team maybe try to get up to five to get ahead of Carolina at six um, or just say you know what go ahead Panthers and pick whoever you want there and it, it, maybe it's a quarterback so um, yeah it's it's not a great year to necessarily be in the top 10 and not need a quarterback uh, when you could you know I guess it, the, it could be worse these teams both could be a quarterback right now and there wouldn't be anyone available there and you'd be reaching but um, but in terms of being able to get something in a trade back it's a little bit tougher this year maybe than most because of the lack of uh of, of really elite quarterback prospects, or so it seems. Daryl, uh, the Jets have four of the top 38 picks in the draft, and this is a good draft for wide receivers. It's a good back for corners and safeties. It's uh, a pretty good. Uh, it's a pretty good draft too for uh, pass rushers and edge rushers. And I, what I've just said is that basically the Jets are looking for both an edge rusher and wide receiver. Now, what I heard today was they're actually thinking seriously of taking Jamison Williams from Alabama. Well, Jamison Williams, before he had the ACL problem, was a dynamic receiver. The question is, we know how long it takes to come back from that kind of an injury. Would they be throwing the dice big time if they took him at four? Yeah, I think what they'd be doing is probably sacrificing a year of the, you know, the first year, or at least the first half of the first year. So, um, if you really like the guy big picture um, and you're not deterred by him missing a decent chunk of, or at least some of his rookie year, then, then yeah, go for it. I think maybe four is perhaps a bit high for him. Maybe you can get him weight and get him at 10, especially because you're looking at three teams there in Carolina, Atlanta, and Seattle who could potentially pick a quarterback. I mean, obviously Seattle has a big hole there. Carolina has a pretty big hole um, and then Atlanta, maybe they could ride it out for another year with Matt Ryan and try next year at a quarterback. So um, the Jets are obviously not going to take a quarterback. That would leave the Jets at 10 with more of the pool of players that they'd be interested in. And so uh, I don't know if you had to take Jamison Williams at four. You could wait till 10. Um, 
but yeah, I think he's an intriguing player. Uh, they obviously are in the mix for wanting to get a difference-making wide receiver. They tried to trade for Tyreek Hill, didn't work out. Um, would they take another shot a year after getting Elijah Moore, who, who has had some pretty good returns so far? So they definitely need another weapon uh, for, for Zach Wilson at receiver, but like you mentioned, they have a lot of other issues too. I would just remind you that uh, Matt Ryan is no longer with Atlanta. He's now in Indianapolis. So oh, I'm my not, gosh. Yeah. You're right. So yeah. I'm sorry. That's okay. Why did I think that? That's okay. Thank you. So <laughs> I, I'm looking at, okay, I will restate that. Yeah. Carolina has Sam Darnold, who is basically a Jets reject. Atlanta has a huge hole there because, I'll, I should say, maybe they go with Mariota for a year. Um, but Seattle obviously has an enormous hole at, at nine at quarterback. Oh, sure. So um, so with Matt Ryan gone, they, Mariota could be a bridge guy at eight. They, they brought him in. But Seattle has nobody, and Carolina essentially has nobody because they have Sam Darnold. No offense to Sam, nice guy. But um, so those are the teams of six, really, and nine. And I, I guess I'll stick with my point about Atlanta that they don't have to pick a quarterback this year, uh, even though I badly messed that. That's all right, <laughs> Ryan. Um, so, but 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 the reality remains. Uh, look, I mean, if you're if you're Seattle. Uh, do you really need to trade up? Do you want to trade up in front of Carolina, or do you just wait till next year? You know, do you just wait till next year and just rebuild it? You, just because you're desperate for a quarterback doesn't mean you have to be so desperate that you trade up um, into say the, from nine to five um, to go get a guy who may not be really good. I think it's okay to kind of just wait it out um, and do perhaps what Atlanta will do, which is which is have Mariota uh, be their guy for a year and then take a swing at this thing next year. Daryl Slater of the Newark Star-Ledger talking about Jets and Giants. Uh, at the four pick, it looks to me like the Jets would go for an edge rusher. Now, uh, I believe that uh, that uh, Hutchinson, Aiden Hutchinson of Michigan, is likely going to be gone in either the first or second pick. So the Jets then would look to a guy like Kayvon Thibodeau, who, by the way, they met with last Friday, if I'm not mistaken, out of Oregon, uh, look, Carl Lawson's coming back, so they need somebody on the other side to give them what they desperately need, and that is an effective pass rush. They've had a really bad pass rush for a few years now, and really, if you look back to even when they traded John Abraham after the 05 season, um, they have not had a truly consistent elite edge rusher um, since then. They did have Muhammad Wilkerson, who gave them their last double-digit sack year in, in 2015, and that's seven years ago. I mean, that's a long time to go without a dominant double-digit sack guy. Um, so the options there, I think, with Hutchinson, surely off the board, would be uh, Thibodeau uh, from Oregon or Trayvon Walker from mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia or maybe Florida State, Jermaine Johnson. So the issue with Thibodeau is like the the, the effort is so has been so up and down based on what all the draft analysts say. And um, so he's a he's a very candid um, player. He's very brash, which can work. Um, but there are some concerns about the effort. And so uh, how did how did the Jets feel about that? Obviously, they wanted to get a chance to sit down with him in person. These teams get thirty visits in terms of the top 30 players that they want to bring in. So they get a chance to cast a wide net in terms of bringing players in for visits. Um, and they really wanted to sit down with him, thinking that perhaps he could be there uh, at four, depending on what the Lions do at two and the Texans do at three. Uh, I guess we can presume Hutchinson goes one to Jacksonville, um, somewhat safe presumption. So the Jets could have their pick of, of edge rushers there, from Thibodeau, Trayvon Walker, or Jermaine Johnson at four, or... 
or do they go corner? Or do they go Ahmad Gardner? Sauce, as he's known, uh, the kid from Cincinnati at four. So the Jets obviously have an issue at corner as well. So I think that those – I don't know. I don't think offensive tackle is the move for them, I, like in terms of something they will do. I think they're going to give Makai back another chance this year. Uh, but obviously there are some there are some highly regarded tackles in the in the top ten in terms of the big boards that teams have, or that uh, sites like Pro Football Focus and, and and ESPN have put out there when you talk about some of the tackles that tackle needy teams could take. And the Giants are one. Yep. The Jets probably not as much. Certainly not as much. Um, but that's sort of where those two teams are. The lines have been bad, and the pass rush has been bad for both those teams now for a few years. Let me ask you this. Give me your opinion. Um, when the Tyreek Hill conversation was going on, it looked to me like the package the, the Jets had offered was similar to what Miami offered. And my question is, if the Jets had included the 10th overall pick in the draft, would and I know that Tyreek Hill wanted to play for Miami, but would that have swayed Kansas City to go the Jets' way? No, because I think the situation with this was – you know, he could have basically said, "No, I'm not. I'm not going to play there." So he did have quite a bit of say um, in in where he was going to wind up because it wasn't just a trade; it was the trade and the contract. Right. And so now, if the Jets had offered, you know, a considerable amount more money than than the Dolphins, which would have been getting into like just insane levels of money, then I'd, perhaps that could have swayed it. But in terms of you know, within the realm of logic and whatever uh i i just don't see a way that the jets could have oh you know overcome the fact that he he did want to play in miami and let's let's be honest i mean look um the jets have had a lot of a lot of bad seasons recently they're not i mean not that the dolphins have been great but they they there's certainly more things about the dolphins that can be enticing for a player who who has number one he has a he has a second home there basically that's where he lives in the off season uh you know no state income tax um it feels like home to him you know it's a team uh, that does that hasn't had like the truly truly miserable history lately that the Jets have had in terms of being a laughing stock. So that that works against the Jets. It just does. You know that's just, that's when te- players have a choice of where to play. Um, the Jets obviously do not have the allure that some other teams do because of you know their recent failures. Uh, I would look at um, look Tyreek Hill. You, the addition of uh, said Wilson, um, you know, what they already have. I'm, my only question about Tyreek Hill, and I think he's a great receiver, but I'm wondering how much of his greatness is attributed, obviously, one, to his ability, and two, Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball to him versus Tua. Is he going to be the same guy? Great point. I mean, you're talking about a guy in Hill. We always talk about his ability to get into open spaces and to tight into tight spaces, create space. But don't forget, like Mahomes has got such a quick release, and he's such a good decision maker, especially on on the move. And when plays break down, his ability to sneak the ball into tight windows, um, to make off schedule plays, like absolutely, he makes the guys around him better. I mean, that's anyone can see that right so i think it's a little bit of both and i think that's a great point because you have a guy in tua who you know let's be honest like he may not be starting in the nfl in a couple of years from now yeah uh i mean he, he is on what amounts to essentially his last chance um and so there are still a ton of questions about him and uh so then you know look hill's going from a guy who is 
one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, maybe the best guy player in the NFL at quarterback, uh, to a guy who may not be starting <laughs> in the NFL next year. So, yeah, it's a tricky situation. Um, so it, it, it all, you look at it like who makes who better, uh, right? I think uh, you certainly can't discount the fact that Patrick Mahomes' ability um, contributed to, to, to at least some of the success that Tyreek Hill had in Kansas City. Yeah, and they also have Jalen Waddle, too. So their receiving core is pretty strong. Uh, as for yep. the Giants, looking for offensive line help, looking for uh, defensive back help, perhaps it's numbers, at numbers five and seven of the draft. Um, look, there's always been questions about Daniel Jones, and we've talked this about this before. Is, is this a make-or-break year for Daniel Jones? I mean, I don't know that. Everybody will say that. But, you know, you got a whole new hierarchy now with the Giants making decisions. And you wonder how long the leash is for Daniel Jones. Look, he's got Tyrod Taylor behind him. I think Tyrod Taylor's a damn good backup quarterback. Yeah, no, I mean, he's he's probably a top five backup quarterback in the NFL. I think that that's totally reasonable. And, and they're not going to have an open competition in uh, in training camp. You know, this is going to be, unless Daniel Jones... In his complete disaster, he's going to be the week one starter, um, barring injury, of course. And so, yeah, this is his last chance, and uh, they, they do have to put some more pieces around him. The problem is they weren't really able to – everyone knew they were not going to be able to do that in free agency because of their cap situation. So um, they need to – Daniel Jones needs a few things to happen in, in addition to him you know, playing better himself. He needs his, his line to perform better um, with probably perhaps a rookie right tackle – so he needs that guy to come along. He needs Andrew Thomas to continue to per- perform well and, and get on the uptick that he was on last year. And then he needs his skill guys to stay healthy, uh, mainly Kenny Galladay um, and uh, Kadarius Tony. And so it's not an ide- it's still not an ideal situation for Daniel Jones. Everyone said, well, he's the type of guy, if he's in the right situation, he can thrive. Well, it's still not the right situation, and everyone knew that. So this is a big-time like player development year and offseason, I think, for a new coaching staff and a rookie head coach and Brian Dable uh, that needs to get more out of these players, like Galladay, like like Tony, than the last coaching staff did. Um, and and wh- whether they're able to do that and whether Daniel Jones is able to ev- elevate his play uh, will go a long way toward determining if he's back with the Giants next season. Daryl Slater of the Newark Star-Ledger covering the Jets and the Giants. Let me ask you about, I mean, people around the league have this concern about whether or not Saquon Barkley is the guy. They've been talking about that since the Giants drafted him, where they drafted him, and there were there were questions and raised eyebrows when he was drafted by the Giants. Not by me, necessarily. But now I'm wondering, is Saquon Barkley, uh, is, is he, I can't say he's on the hot seat because players not, but are the Giants looking at Saquon Barkley as their long-term solution at running back? I would be surprised. I mean, I think, you know, the running back market is completely dead considering the, how, these, how poorly a lot of these contracts have worked out uh, in terms of second con- big second contracts for running backs. And, and a guy like Barkley who has not been able to stay healthy and productive in recent years. He's getting $7 bucks guaranteed on the fifth-year option this year, which is sort of why they – even if they wanted to trade them, that's, it's just not feasible. Um, so I, I, I don't see a way in which they pay him a big contract next year. I think, you know, for him, best case scenario, he comes out and has a great year. Um, and then he gets paid by, by somebody next year. I, I don't know if it's going to be the giants. I just, um, 
and even whoever pays him, I just I don't know number one how much he's going to get, and number two if it's going to wind up being worth it. Because at this point, he had a really good rookie year. If he comes out and plays well this year, you still have to ask yourself, what is he? Is he the guy who you saw in eighteen was really good, and the guy who maybe this year is healthy, good, or is he the guy who in between has not been? It wasn't able to stay healthy. So there's a lot of um, reasons for skepticism, I think, around Barkley. At this point, um, I mean, forget it, you know, forget the fact that you know he was drafted obviously way too high. I think that's already been established. But for him, it's about trying to move forward here. And and for the Giants, you know, I think if he had had a better year, um, maybe teams would have come knocking for 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 that for for a trade. But you're talking about a guy who's going in the final year of his contract, making seven million bucks. Maybe Joe Shane looks at it and says, "Hey, let him walk next off next off season free agency." and then you know get a comp pick uh potentially you know depending on what else joe shane does in terms of bringing in free agents but that's a lot of what ifs and a long way away but um but i don't i don't think it's hard to say right now because a lot of it depends on what happens this season but i don't think you can look at it and say necessarily he is a long-term solution for him just because the guy hasn't been able to stay healthy and productive darren let's talk about zach wilson because we haven't mentioned him much uh to this point they re-signed Joe Flacco, uh, and Mike White is also on the staff in the quarterback room. But Zach Wilson, uh, there were times last year when I thought he looked very sharp. Um, look, when uh, Robert Sala didn't coach the Tampa game, uh, that was as much of a coaching blunder as it was. Uh, they, they should have won that game. I don't think there's any doubt about it. But bad teams find way to lose games, and good teams find way to win games. Uh, having said that, they almost gave away the Jacksonville game because uh, of some questionable calls. But that aside, Zach Wilson is, we're waiting for, is, is Elijah Moore going to show us more than just uh, as a sampling of what we saw last year? They draft a wide receiver to complement him, two additional new tight ends. You would think that the passing game would be better. You think? I, I mean, Corey Davis, if he can stay healthy, shouldn't be as ineffective as he was last year. Um, I think they've probably upgraded at tight end with CJ Uzama uh, from the Bengals. Now he's not a top three or top five tight end, but he's better than what the Jets had. Um, more if he can build on last year. There's a lot of reasons for for optimism. If they can get that extra, that other, that third, really not third because he would be the number one weapon, right? In terms of an elite receiver, whether it's like trading for DK Metcalf. Now, of course. The, team has to agree to trade that type of player but the jets are clearly uh, open to doing that obviously given the Ty- tyreek hill uh trade situation so uh yeah i think zach wilson has an opportunity here um to take the next step in in 2022 um they've they've done an all right job of putting pieces around him um and they clearly want to you know give him as good of a you know, options as possible and are willing to pay big while he's on his relatively affordable rookie contract. So, uh, you know, I think, the, yeah, he should be better. There's no doubt about it. It's his second year in this offense, too. It's not like he's undergoing a system change every year, too. And so the, I think that there, there's every every reasonable reason to think that this kid should um, perform better in some spots than he did last year, obviously finished the year pretty strong. And uh, then again, so did Sam Darnold as a rookie, right? So I think we need, you need to see something in year two and year three. Uh, otherwise, you got you wind up cutting the cord like they did with Sam Darnold. Let me ask you this, Daryl, before I let you go. Uh, the Brian Flores lawsuit made huge headlines, and understandably so. 
but it wasn't about the hiring practices as much as it was, it was about did the Miami owner offer Brian Flores a uh, hundred grand to blow games uh, because that's a whole different set of a can of worms that could cost uh, the owner his franchise. Do you think that we've heard the last of this and, and the, uh, from the Giants' point of view? Well, definitely not. I mean, in all aspects of the suit, from the tanking allegations to the, the sham interviews, various, you know, there were various arms of, the, of that lawsuit uh, that were really not totally related. Like we just mentioned two big explosive things that were totally separate, the tanking and, and, and the racial discrimination. And so, um, no, definitely not. I mean, John Mara came out at the owners' meetings uh, late last month, and he really came out swinging against against that lawsuit. Called, he could have no commented, but he, he didn't. You know, he said that meritless claims are meritless. Um, you know, he said he'd be totally fine sitting for a deposition because, you know, according to him, that you know, the truth is what obviously he's he what he's saying he thinks is true, or he says insists is true. So he has no problem. He said sitting for a deposition, not that he'd have a choice because if you're called for a deposition, you got to sit for one. And so, yeah, this lawsuit. Uh, is going to take a while to unfold. And I think uh, one of the things to watch, and Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk has done a, a nice job of going through this, is whether the, whether the court, whether this plays out in public court uh, or whether it goes to closed arbitration, because which is obviously not public. Um, because we, with the Dolphins, there's a chance it could go to closed arbitration because there's a clause in all these coaches' contracts that says any, any sort of legal... Uh, dispute between team and coach uh, will be played out in closed arbitration. Now, since Flores never coached the Giants, that perhaps does not apply to that part of the lawsuit. So I think we'll see. I mean, I, I would I would think that in general, parties like to settle these things. But um, Brian Flores' motivation as someone who has quite a bit of money already, perhaps would be to, and he said this, to see this play out as publicly as possible and, and get some answers out there. So no, to the, the short answer is no, this thing is not even close to being over uh, on either front, the Dolphins front or the Giants front. Um, we got a long way to go and it'll probably a lot of like behind the scenes, boring legal stuff that's going to be happening before we see another uh, type of explosive part of, of this news, because it does seem like a while ago that this came out, but it's, it's still there. You know, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Look, Roger Goodell made a couple of statements that had me scratching my head, one of which was, you know, we're looking into this very seriously. And I, I listened and I said, yeah, fine. You work for the owners. You're getting $60 million a year. I don't think he's been as strong on this issue as he should have been. But then again, he works for the owners. Uh, what is there, five or six black coaches in the NFL right now? Or five or six minority coaches in the NFL right now? Right, yeah. Robert Sala, Ron, Ron Rivera, uh Oh, well, Mike Mike McDaniel and the Dolphins, right. who's, who's biracial, um, and uh, the other ones are slipping my mind, but I think five is the number, which I believe was the same number as last year. Lovey Smith, of course, um, and uh, yeah, but but I, I, I'm forgetting a couple people. But yeah, so it's not like the league has made huge strides in this area, and they know that. Well, here's the thing I don't understand. They came out and said, we're going to make sure that at least an offensive coordinator is a minority coach. Why limit it to the offensive coordinator and not include the defensive coordinator. Yeah, I mean, clearly they are sort of grappling and struggling with how to effectively uh, get these hires done. And I think, as I've said with you before here, 
and other people have said this too, but it gets back to ownership. I mean, right. every single owner in the NFL, it, majority owner, right, is a white white male. That's the reality of, the, of ownership in the NFL, and, and obviously of corporate America, high level corporate America in general. But um, you know, these these owners, in terms until they change their mindset, now will say the say the Broncos get sold to a minority owner. Will that automatically change everything? Obviously not. Right, um, but. And, you know, these owners need to – I think it's well-established. I mean, you, you saw at uh, at the owners' meetings, Pete Carroll called out um, ownership in a closed-door meeting league-wide across the league for, you know, say, change the way you think. You know, we need – until we have owners who change the way they think, um, we're not going to have more results uh, in, in terms of more diverse hiring. Uh, so I think it gets it goes all the way to the top. That's That's really what it comes down to. And, you know, the league clearly can do some things to, to improve the situation, but a lot of it comes down to the very nature of the people who own these teams. Real quick before I let you go, the new overtime rule, you like it? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's a little bit, it's quite a bit more equitable, right? And they're always trying to thread the needle between what they had and, and the, some of the gimmicky stuff that college has done. But, um, yeah, I think giving automatically giving both teams at least one shot um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll make things so, so we don't have the type of situation like we did after the AFC Championship game uh, last year with the Bills and the Chiefs. It'll be interesting. Well, enjoy the draft next week. It should be very interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Then again, For sure. Then again, I have no life. So I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Daryl, thanks again for your time, and you stay safe. Thanks. Take care. Daryl Slater of the Newark Star-Ledger covers both the Jets and the Giants. I uh, I get very frustrated. Uh, and a lot of things bother me uh, sometimes right away, and they go away. Sometimes it eats at me. But if I were to rank the decision makers in sports, and by that I mean the commissioners, I would say Adam Silver's got no peers. He is the most effective commissioner in all of sports. Roger Goodell... Very disappointed. Disappointed in his waffling, disappointing in his... But then again, he works for the owners. And if I was making $60 million a year, I don't know that I'd be that interested either. But he's got to at least put on a better front. And Rob Manfred in baseball, there are some things. I don't think he's as suspect as Goodell, uh, but he's done some things that, that that annoy me. But his predecessors, you know, specifically Bud Selig, I thought he was a terrible commissioner. But that aside, it's, um, you know, at the beginning of baseball season, and we'll see how it all shakes out. we got a, a long way to go in the baseball season. The basketball season now is, is in full high gear with the playoffs. Uh, who emerges? I don't know, but it's going to be awfully tough for anybody to come out of the West other than the Phoenix Suns. In the East, different story. Should the Celtics beat the Nets... That puts them, for my money, uh, right near the top of the heap. Milwaukee, without question. Uh, Philadelphia, surprised at the way they have handled Toronto rather easily. Uh, I give them credit for that. Uh, I give Doc Rivers credit for that because he's come under a lot of scrutiny over the last several years. Uh, and then uh, you look at uh, at other. You look at a Miami team who can play defense with the best of them. They got a bevy of shooters. 
the the, the uh, team that emerges out of these is going to come from Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia. I don't think any other team is going to pull the shocker that's going to make them emerge to uh, to get to the NBA Finals. I'm Howard David. We thank you for taking a bite of the Big Apple. And Howard David Live, you stay safe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V 
on YouTube.